Let's turn then to our passage this morning, uh, which is continuing our series in John's Gospel, and we're going to read from John chapter 6. Really what's going to happen is I'm going to um, read this passage, this event that happens with Jesus and the disciples, and then next week Jesus gives this uh, monologue that David McCaig, who's the pastor at Peterhead Baptist, he's going to be uh, with us next Sunday. He's going to be really opening uh, that for us, where Jesus kind of explains this, and he kind of explains the feeding of the 5,000 and what goes before. So we're going to read John chapter 6 from verse 15. I'm going to pick up and we'll read to verse 21. And it reads this. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. When evening came, his disciples went down to the lake where they got into a boat and set off across the lake for Capernaum. By now it was dark and Jesus had not yet joined them. A strong wind was blowing and the waters grew rough. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus approaching the boat walking on water and they were frightened. But he said to them, it is I, don't be afraid. Then they were willing to take him into the boat and immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading. The Lord's word for if we could make a greatest hits album out of the Gospels, I think this would make it. This is one of these stories that we love. This is one of these stories that makes the vast majority of kids' colouring books eh, and Bible stories. It's a staple of all of those. It's a wonderful story. It's recorded in three of the Gospels for us. And I'd encourage you as we go through this in John to also read the other Gospels alongside. So that's Matthew 14 and Mark chapter 6. We don't find this account in Luke's gospel. And in each of the three, it directly follows uh, the feeding of the multitude, this 5,000 plus. And John's encounter uh, is significantly the shortest, because you might be reading that thinking, where on earth is Peter? But that comes in the other gospels. Matthew's account is about twice as long as John's, but that doesn't make this account any less important. When Jesus had fed the 5,000 People saw this, the crowd saw this, and they wanted to make him king. But as we'll explore next week, they didn't want to make him king for the right reasons, but they wanted to make him king because of the cool stuff that he was doing, basically. They saw this physical, they saw these great things happening, and they thought, yeah, we want this guy to be our king. And Jesus very quickly realizes that this is their intentions, and immediately he leaves them. And I'm sure that some of the disciples were, again, confused by this because they were thinking, surely this is what Jesus wants. Jesus is about to become famous and he's getting more famous and we're going to be followers of this powerful guy that everybody follows. So surely we want Jesus to stay and be known as the king. But of course, we know that God's sovereign plan had not yet unfolded and now was not the time. So Jesus broke up this meeting on the side of the mountain and he left. And before he left, he went off on his own and he sent his disciples on a boat to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And there he went to the mountainside and he went to go and spend time alone with the Father. And before we get into this passage, this kind of 16 to 21, these verses, I, I want to start with the context in verse 15 because I think it's really important for us and it highlights something. Jesus withdrew again to a mountain by himself. 
or Mark chapter 6, verse 46. After leaving them, he went up on a mountainside to pray. Or Matthew 14, 23. After he had dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. Are you always tired? Most of our teenagers I speak to are always tired. Maybe going to bed early is, is a good idea. But I wonder, are you always exhausted? And there's a fair chance that the right advice for you is to go to bed earlier. But I'm thinking a little bit deeper than that. Are you always weary? Is your soul tired? And do you feel like you're running on empty? If so, I would suggest that the best place for a weary and an exhausted and a defeated soul is to imitate exactly what Jesus is doing here. The mathematician and theologian of the 17th century, Pascal, said this, all of humanity's problems stem from man's inability to sit quietly in a room alone. I think it's a sweeping statement. I think it's a bit of an overstatement eh, and a bit of a simplification. But I wonder if this is the sort of overstatement that we need today that tries to awaken us from this relentless stream of distractions and diversions in life. And I wonder how true is this for you that we're unable to sit quietly. That doesn't mean sitting quietly as we watch Netflix. 400 years after Pascal, I think life is as hurried, if not more, is as anxious, if not more, than it has ever been. The competition for our attention is utterly ruthless. And we don't just hear distracting noises, but we hear this symphony of noises pulling us in all sorts of directions, always looking for our attention on a daily basis. How hard is it to find real rest? I think that's what Pascal's getting at here. And yet, long before Pascal, we have this model in Jesus. We have this model of healthy habits and rhythms of life that I think are, are worth implementing for any of us. Because even the Son of Man prioritised uh, spending time with the Father. I like to do things. And my first reaction when I see Jesus going up the mountainside is, why? Why didn't Jesus spend time doing stuff and going and healing people and doing miracles? Because that's what Jesus did. Why on earth is he, he, starving people of that and going and spending time by himself? But Jesus chose again and again and again in perfect wisdom and love to give his first and his best moments to the Father. You notice here this disrupts what they're doing. This is not a convenient time for Jesus to go and leave his disciples. The winds and the waves are starting to rise. His disciples are struggling on the boat and there is the Lord Jesus on the hill spending time with his father. If Jesus God incarnate carved out so much space in the face of the demands of human life. How much more should we? 
We only have a glimpse of, of Jesus' spiritual practices, of his, of his own walk with, the, with God the Father and what that looks like. But what we do have isn't an accident, and it's not light, it's very deliberate. For Jesus, the wilderness, the desolate place, the mountainside, became one of his prized possessions. Because it was a place of quiet. It was a place away from people. And he regularly escaped the noise and the busyness of everything that was around him. And I identify with the disciples. Go, go, go. Do, do, do. When there's things that need done, let's get them done. Let's rest later. Let's worry about those things later. But that is a dangerous mentality. Friends, prioritise your time spent alone with the Lord because Jesus does. Not just the reading of scripture, but retreat and being alone with God. Horatius Bonner, a great Scottish pastor, said this, converse over everything with him. Unburden yourself wholly. Every thought, feeling, wish, plan, doubt to him. He wants not merely to be on good terms with you, but to be intimate. And in receiving the Father's voice, in praying alone, and at times when things were particularly pressing, fasting, Jesus sought communion with his Father. Friends, if you are weary, tired, or exhausted, I urge you to make time, more time, to spend alone with God. Because that's where we find Jesus. So let's move into what follows this. From verse 19. When they rode about three or four miles. They saw Jesus approaching the boat. Walking on water. And they were frightened. This feeding of this huge crowd. Proved that Jesus was the ultimate provider and host of humanity that's what it declares that's what it shows us and it's symbolized by this little offering of the boy that he makes exponentially greater and this is a showing miracle this is showing Jesus to the masses and now we move to a much less public miracle the sea of Galilee is a fresh lake a fresh water lake it's about 12 miles long and about seven miles wide at its longest and widest, and the river Jordan flows through it from north to south on its way to the Dead Sea. Interestingly, it's 680 feet below sea level, so only the Dead Sea is lower than it. And what that means is that as the cold air comes down the hill and the warm air rises from the water, it means that storms are very quick to develop on the sea. And that's one of the biggest challenges that the sea has, is how quickly conditions can change. And we know this because these are seasoned fishermen. These are good guys that know exactly what they're doing. This is their profession. And they are, they are nervous. Based on the other accounts, we know that it's about three o'clock in the morning. These guys knew how to sail a boat. This trip should have maybe taken them an hour or two. But they get caught up in this poor weather. It's the middle of the night, it's dark, it's been a long day of ministry. The waves are fierce, the winds are growing. And they're undoubtedly exhausted from just trying to keep a hold of their boat to stay in control. 
Mark 6 tells us that Jesus saw them straining at the oars, trying to combat the wind and the waves. And just before dawn, Jesus approaches that boat, walking on water. Jesus wasn't walking beside the shore. They are three and a half, three, three, four miles into the middle of this lake. The language used across these Gospels doesn't allow for this rational thought that somehow Jesus was on the bank and walking beside them. But Jesus was standing on water himself. And I think the lesson for the disciples is they see Jesus. I think of those words of the Great Commission in Matthew 28, 18. All authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. And indeed it has. Such a miraculous act is both a declaration and it's a statement without words. I compare that to the second verse of the Bible. In the beginning... The spirit was hovering over the waters. And here is the sun walking on the face of the waters. And you'll find in Job 9 the most wonderful words, verse 8, that God alone treads on the waves of the sea. What the disciples saw, and again, it's another one of these mind-blowing moments that we cannot fathom what it would be like to see. But what these disciples are witnessing is none other than the creator in control of his creation. Jesus has all authority in heaven and earth, so much so that he commands the water to let him walk on it. I've never tried it, but I imagine no matter how hard I scream, how fast I might try and run, which really isn't very fast, how many illusions I might try and create, there is not a chance I'm ever going to be able to walk on water. But it is possible if you have the sovereignty and the authority and the control over that water. And I wonder this morning who Jesus is to you. I wonder if he's a good man. I wonder if he's some kind of decent teacher, peaceful, revolutionary kind of guy. I wonder if he's a teacher that helped people and did some cool stuff. If you're not quite convinced that Jesus is the saviour of the world, who he really says he is, he can't be God, but he's some of those things. Well, I think stories like this throw a bit of a spanner in the works for you. Because what's being described here isn't a nice guy. What's being described here isn't a good teacher. What's being described here isn't some kind of political revolutionary come to shake things up. But this is the action and the ability of God on display and I believe it I believe that Jesus is God that he coexists for all eternity with the Father and the Spirit as part of the Godhead of the Trinity and that he as God has the ability and authority over all things what he's doing by walking on water is he is showing his disciples who he is he's almost like authenticating himself proving who he is to his followers. And we come to verse 20. All of these disciples are on this boat. Simon Peter, his brother Andrew, brothers James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew the tax collector, doubting Thomas, James the son of Alphaeus, Simon the zealot, Judas the son of James, and of course Judas Iscariot. And they're all on a mission. Our mission is just to get to the other side of the water. And now they're facing this terrifying trial. 
And the storm is enough to keep them busy. They didn't need anything else to come along and add to the trauma or the struggle. These guys are trying their hardest to keep control of their boat. And I wonder who the first to see it was. And I wonder what he said as he looked up and looked out the boat in the dark with waves crashing about and there is Jesus. I don't know about you, but this story, I often have pictures of this really tranquil water and it's the light of day and they kind of watch Jesus from really far off as he runs towards them. And, but no, this is the middle of the night and the waves are thrashing about and here he is. Mark 6, 49 and 50 tells us they thought he was a ghost. They cried out because they saw him and were terrified. John here doesn't focus on the source of the fear like Mark does because I don't, he's more interested in, in portraying how their fears are alleviated. And Jesus alleviates them by saying, it is I. Do not be afraid. God says to Moses in Exodus 3, 14, I am who I am. I am. It is I. It is only God who could speak through the bush. It is only God who could walk on water. And the one who walks across this stirring sea, who speaks on behalf of God in the first person, does it because he is God. And much like Moses' reaction to that bush, at this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. When he encountered this bush, the disciples were undoubtedly in the presence of God. I am. It is I. This isn't Jesus standing there going, hello, I'm over here. Hi, it's me. Boo, surprise. This isn't normal, if you haven't noticed. This isn't a normal greeting from Jesus. This isn't an everyday sort of event. This isn't Jesus catching up with his friends as they sit and eat as they would do frequently. But this is Jesus standing where only God could possibly stand and declaring, I am, it is I. The only one who could walk on the waves. And in this context, those words do not fear are such a gracious response. Such a gracious response of hope and of promise to these confused and these fearful disciples. And it strikes me that as we looked at John's account um, of the resurrection, they're still kind of in the same boat when they get there, aren't they? They just don't get it. They're confused and they're scared. But just like at the resurrection, we see here that Jesus' reaction is, do not fear. He is one of absolute grace. I wonder if you love a Christian cliche as much as me. When you feel like you're drowning in life, don't worry. Your lifeguard walks on water. Let me rephrase this so it's maybe less aesthetically pleasing but slightly more accurate. When the waves crash down on our lives, when you feel utterly overwhelmed, battered and broken, thrown around by the storms of life, your saviour meets you there. And I think that's the illustration for us in this passage. 
I think that this is an illustration of how our lives are. Because this story isn't a parable. The story isn't sat here with a meaning for us, but this is historical narrative. This is events that really happened in history. But I think it also illustrates for us what happens when Jesus comes into our lives. Life at time is like those waves, isn't it? That is pulling against those oars as we're just trying to pedal along and just get on with life and do it. As we're trying to pull against the winds of resistance that we find in the world, it could be a whole multitude of things, just as we are trying to get on and get by. However, you're not getting anywhere. And as you get more exhausted and the waves get bigger, you're about to be engulfed. But as soon as Jesus comes on the scene, as soon as Jesus gets into the boat, we're home safely. It's so quick in this passage. It's so immediate. And that's what happens when Christ comes into our life. It doesn't mean he's going to take away the challenges, the waves and the winds and the things that engulf us in life. It doesn't mean that he's going to make our lives plain sailing and completely easy. But it means that he's there alongside us in that darkness. That he gets us through those winds and those waves and he carries us through that storm. And you see, if you are engulfed, if you are tired, if you are exhausted, scaled, discouraged, we come back to some of my favourite words in all of scripture in Matthew 11. Come to me. All who are weary and burdened and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Come. There's no need to be afraid. I am is here. And if you trust in him for your salvation, he will never leave you nor forsake you. And finally, as we come to verse 21, then they were willing to take him into the boat and immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading. On Mark 6, 51, then, they climbed, then he climbed into the boat with them and the wind died down. They were completely amazed. In Matthew 14, this is where we read of Peter stepping out of the boat. Mark and John evidently aren't interested in this. And I'm assuming it's because they wanted the sole focus of this passage to be on Jesus and what he is doing and not in Peter. I think when we come to this passage and my church experience is that we focus on Peter in this passage. I think we focus quite a lot on the Peter that is sinking and how Jesus lifts him up. But, but this keeps our eyes totally fixed on Jesus. And without any explanation, this boat, with its disciples, and I presume Jesus inside, arrives at its destination. I don't think this suggests that it magically got there or Jesus made it speed along. I think what it means is nothing eventful happened. Psalm 107, then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble and he brought them out of their distress. He stilled the storm to a whisper. The waves of the sea were hushed. They were glad when it grew calm and he guided them 
to the desired haven. Come to Jesus. Not because your paths will be made straight. Not because it will be easier. But because the creator, the sustainer and the saviour of the universe will walk with you and he will guide your path in the midst of all of it. In the centre of this important part of the gospel, as Jesus is beginning to be noticed by his friends and his enemies, he takes this as an opportunity to make himself known to his disciples and therefore to us as the readers of this gospel. What does all of this mean for us? I think it just points us to wonder and to worship. Because this is the gospel declaring in God's own words the identity of the Son. Just wonder and marvel at him. Open those pages of scripture and just begin to read from the beginning of time of how God has been at work in this world. Establishing his plans and his purposes. Marvel at the person of Jesus. The one who came into the most obscure of circumstances, lived that sinful life, yet died as a sinner and took your burden to Calvary so that you might be drawn in and drawn near to him and know him intimately. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. Is it not beautiful? Friends, stand in awe of him. I invite you to encounter the I am. The one of the unconsumed burning bush. The one who walked on the waves of the water. Do you know, our call as Christians and our task for sanctification and discipleship simply is trusting in this all-consuming God who has been made known in Jesus. The reassurance I always find from the disciples is we don't need to know it all. We don't need to have every box ticked. We don't need to have every doubt solved. But what we need is to trust in him. What we need is to trust and say, I am. We know. We know that you are who you say you are, Lord God. And we worship him. At the end of Matthew's account, Matthew 14, 33. And then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly, you are the son of God. But remember, don't we, at the end of John's gospel, John 20, second last chapter, we're told the purpose of the book. That all these things are written, not, not everything is written, but the things that are written are so that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and by believing you may have life in his name. This is why Jesus walked on water. This is why he calmed the storm and would guide the path of his disciples so that the disciples might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. And friends, that is why we have the scriptures today. That you might immerse yourself in it. That you might meet the very Lord Jesus in its pages and there discover the one who walks on water. The I am 
the Messiah, the Son of God. Will you receive him? Lord, we bring our burdened and our wearied souls before you. And we commit them into your hands. We thank you, Lord, that in you we are promised rest. I thank you that the invitation is there for us to come. thank you that you are gentle and you are humble in heart and that our souls find rest with you I thank you that your yoke is easy and your burden is light I thank you for your authority Lord I thank you that you have authority over all things draw oh so near.